Good morning, everybody. Let's just take a moment to be still, to be quiet, to remember that as we gather here, we are in the presence of our loving, living God. The prophet Isaiah wrote, and the Messiah Jesus read, The Spirit of the Lord is on me, because he has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners, and recovery of sight for the blind, to release the oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favour. And now we come to God in prayer. Let us pray together. O God, our God, whose generosity and mercy are beyond understanding, we meet together to offer you our worship and praise. We bring you our thanks for all that has been good over the last week. For the brightness of summer sun, and the feel of its heat on our bodies. For the sweet juiciness of summer fruits, and the crisp crunchiness of salad vegetables. For the delight of laughing out loud at things we have found funny. For the wonder of new discoveries or understandings. For the good memories we have made and for those we have recalled. O God, our God, whose love is unending and whose justice is perfect, we meet together knowing we need to confess our failings and regrets. The hasty words we have spoken and cannot now retract the missed opportunities that will never come our way again. The ways that we have ignored or denied what is happening, even in our own homes or workplaces. The ways we have spoken too swiftly to criticise or condemn what we do not properly understand. the ways in which we have fallen short of our own ideals, never mind yours. O God, our God, whose justice brings new understanding and whose forgiveness brings new life, help us to listen carefully for your voice speaking to us today. Help us to look out for one another in our need for love and encouragement. Help us to be alert for opportunities to employ our wealth and our skills in your service. For we pray in the name of Christ. Amen. Now I've got a photograph to show you. I wonder if anybody knows who these people are, if you recognise them. 
<laughs> okay. Okay, so who are these people? Mr. and Mrs. Weir, that's correct. And what's special about Mr. and Mrs. Weir? They did. They won the Euro lottery. Now, I'm not saying doing the lottery is a great thing, but that's what they did, and they won. And in the way of I once knew a man who once knew a woman who danced with the Prince of Wales, I was actually at an exercise class yesterday with somebody who used to work with Mr. Weir when they both worked for STV. So there you go. It's a very small world. Mr. and Mrs. Weir won £161,000. Uh, £161 million, pounds, sorry. £161 million. £1,000 would be better. £161 million pounds on the lottery. And that's what £161 million pounds looks like written down. £161 with six noughts and a decimal point and two noughts. That's one heck of a lot of money, isn't it? £161 million. How will they be spending it? Well, according to what I've read in the press... They would quite like a new house. They have a three-bedroomed house in Largs, and I think it's probably quite a nice three-bedroomed house. Not grand, but quite nice. But they think they might quite like a new one. They would like to visit China, Australia, Cambodia, and Thailand. Mr. Weir would like to watch Barcelona play at home, maybe in a private box. They would like to visit art galleries in Paris and Russia, And Mrs. Weir thinks she might like a new car. Mr. Weir is quite happy with the car he's got. I have to say, they could buy all of those and have an awful lot of change out of £161 million. But here's a question for you. If you had, let's say, a million pounds, don't need to have £161 million, just a million, what would you do with it? Clean water for the world. Very good. Okay. It was nice to know we start with the kind of holy bit and we'll have to work back to the worldly bit. But <laughs> that's okay. Thanks, Paul. That would be a, a fantastic use of a, of a million pounds, wouldn't it? Clean water for the, the whole world. What would you do if you, could have, if you could have all the money you wanted? What would you spend it on, Alison? Turn this building into a centre for well-being. Okay, to turn this building into a centre for well-being for the community, that would be a fantastic use. You see, you're all much too nice and switched on, really. I wanted somebody to say, I'd go on a world cruise, or I'd have a big party, or something like that. But you might want to do those up. Sorry. Uh, Malcolm says he'd buy more raffle tickets, so if you had a million pounds, you could buy an awful lot of lottery tickets, couldn't you? But what would you do if suddenly you had... All the money you could dream of. Well, we're going to hear a story that Jesus told about somebody who suddenly had all the money he could dream of. Well, we're reading from Luke chapter 15. And the heading of this one is The Lost Son. Some of you may know it as the prodigal son. Jesus went on to say, There was once a man who had two sons. The younger one said to him, Father, give me my share of the property now. So the man divided his property between his two sons. After a few days, the younger son sold his part of the property and left home with the money. He went to a country far away 
where he wasted his money in reckless living. He spent everything he had. Then a severe famine spread over that country, and he was left without a thing. So he went to work for one of the citizens of that country, who sent him out to his farm to take care of the pigs. He wished he could fill himself with the bean pods the pigs ate, but no one gave him anything to eat. At last he came to his senses and said, All my father's hired workers have more than they can eat, and here am I about to starve. I'll get up and go to my father and say, Father, I have sinned against God and against you. I am no longer fit to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired workers. So he got up and started back to his father. He was still a long way from home when his father saw him. His heart was filled with pity and he ran, threw his arms around his son and kissed him. Father, the son said, I have sinned against God and against you. I am no longer fit to be called your son. But the father called his servants. Hurry, he said, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and shoes on his feet. Then go and get the prized calf and kill it and let us celebrate with a feast. For this son of mine was dead, but now he is alive. He was lost, but now he has been found. And so the feasting began. In the meantime, the elder son was out in the field. On his way back, when he came close to the house, he heard the music and the dancing. So he called one of the servants and asked him, What's going on? Your brother has come home, the servant answered, and your father has killed the prized calf because he got him back safe and sound. The elder brother was so angry that he would not go into the house. So his father came out and begged him to come in. But he answered his father, Look, all these years I have worked for you like a slave, and I have never disobeyed your orders. What have you given me? Not even a goat for me to have a feast with my friends. But this son of yours wasted all your property on prostitutes, and when he came back home, you killed a prized calf for him. My son, the father answered, you are always here with me, and everything I have is yours. But we had to celebrate and be happy, because your brother was dead, but now he is alive. He was lost, but now he has been found. Jesus told us other stories about people who had a lot of money. And we are going to hear now what is probably one of the most puzzling of them all. This is from Luke chapter 16. The shrewd manager. Jesus said to his disciples, There was once a rich man who had a servant who managed his property. The rich man was told that the manager was wasting his his master's money. So he called him in and said, What is this I hear about you? Hand in a complete account of your handling of my property, because you cannot be my manager any longer. The servant said to himself, My master is going to dismiss me from my job, 
What shall I do? I'm not strong enough to dig ditches, and I'm ashamed to beg. Now I know what I'll do. Then, when my job is gone, I shall have friends who will welcome me in their homes. So he called in all the people who were in debt to his master. He asked the first one, How much do you owe my master? One hundred barrels of olive oil, he answered. Here is your account, the manager told him. Sit down and write fifty. Then he asked another one, And you, how much do you owe? A thousand sacks of wheat, he answered. Here is your account, the manager told him. Write eight hundred. As a result, the master of this dishonest manager praised him for doing such a shrewd thing. Because the people of this world are much more shrewd in handling their affairs than the people who belong to the light. And Jesus went on to say, And so I tell you, make friends for yourselves with worldly wealth, so that when it gives out, you will be welcomed in the eternal home. I have another picture for you, somebody who is rather famous. I realise some of our younger people are probably tucked up in bed and asleep when the programme that this man has most recently been seen in is on television. Who can tell me who it is? Alan Sugar, Lord Sugar. Sir Alan, as he used to be known before he got made a Lord. And the programme that he is associated with is The Apprentice. And in this programme, several people, starts off with about 16, want to get a job with Lord Sugar. And every week he sets them a challenge to do something, to sell the most things, to get the most orders, to come up with the best idea, whatever it is. And every week on the team that loses, three of them go into the boardroom and one of them gets fired. And that is actually a picture of Lord Sugar saying, you're fired. It's become one of those very um, in sayings, I think, since the programme began. But if you have seen that programme, you will know that when the people are called into the boardroom, they come up with ideas why it shouldn't be them who gets fired. So imagine, probably easier for the grown-ups this one than for the children, you are called in by your manager to say, I'm going to fire one of you, and I want to know why I should keep you. What would you say? What kind of things might you want your manager to take into account in thinking about firing you? What would you do to keep your job? Any ideas? (laughs) Well, clearly none of us want to be on The Apprentice, do we? It's very interesting watching The Apprentice because what sometimes happens is they stab each other in the back. Not literally, but they say, oh, you shouldn't, you shouldn't sack me. You should sack them because they didn't really contribute to the task very much. And then they go, hang on a minute, what are you saying I didn't contribute to the Well, you didn't do this. Yes, I did. No, you didn't. And so it goes on. Actually, this story that we've heard kind of connects with that. And I will be coming back with the adults to look at that a bit more in a minute. But it's something about what do you do 
when you're under pressure. When you, as a person of some wealth, are faced with the possibility of losing your livelihood, which is the situation that the manager in the story faced. It is a complicated story. It is a confusing story. I'm not going to try and unpack it now, but the grown-ups will look at it a bit more in a minute. We're going to hear one last story about a rich person that Jesus told, and I think Eric is going to bring that for us. Our last reading for this morning is taken from the Gospel of Luke, chapter 19, chapter 16, verse 19 to 31. There was once a rich man who dressed in the most expensive clothes and lived in great luxury every day. There was also a poor man named Lazarus, covered with sores, who used to be brought to the rich man's door. Hoping to eat the beast of food that fell from the rich man's table, even the doors would come and lick his sores. The poor man died and was carried by the angels to, beside, to sit beside Abraham at a feast in heaven. The rich man died and was buried. And in hell, where he was in great pain, he looked up and said, and saw Abraham, far away with Lazarus at his side. So he called out, Father Abraham, take pity on me, and send Lazarus to dig his fingers in some water and cool my tongue, because I am in great pain in this fire. But Abraham said, Remember, my son, that in your lifetime you were given all the good things, while Lazarus got all the bad things. But now he is enjoying himself here while you are in pain. Besides all that, there is a deep pit lying between us, so that those who want to cross over from here to you cannot do so. Nor can anyone cross over to us from where you are. The rich man said, Then I beg you, Father Abraham, send Lazarus to my father's house, where I have five brothers. Let him go and warn them so that they at least will not come to this place of pain. Abraham said, Your brothers have Moses and their prophets to warn them. Your brothers should listen to what they say. The rich man answered, That is not enough, Father Abraham. But if someone here, if someone were to rise from death and go to them, then they would turn from their sins. But Abraham said, If they will not listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be convinced, even if someone were to rise from death. Amen. Now, if the children would like to go and do some colouring and some puzzles, we've got some all sorts of different colouring and puzzles um, at the back in the table, which is going to be a lot more interesting than listening to me talk to the grown-ups. I say that every week. It's going to be very interesting listening to me talk to the grown-ups. It's fascinating. But perhaps it's a bit of a long time to sit still if you're only small. When I chose the title for today's service, um, Stories Jesus Told About People, I realised actually nearly every story that Jesus told has got people in it. So it's a bit of a contrived title. But it is probably fair to say that the inclusion of these three stories in the Gospel of Luke, and only in the Gospel of Luke... And the way that they are located so close together within his narrative is probably quite significant. 
We've been reminded over the last couple of weeks that the gospel writers selected and ordered their material carefully and purposefully. It's no accident that Luke puts these three stories where he does. The scholars tell us that Luke's gospel can be identified as being consistent with the historiographical, big word, writings of its time. It is what in its day would have been understood as history. Now, we know that there are some factual inaccuracies in the dates in Luke, but that would not be that uncommon in any history written at that time. They were more interested in setting a scene with their dates and saying, on this date, so-and-so did such-and-such. The language in which Luke and Acts, sometimes seen as, as a piece by commentators, is written, suggests that his was probably quite an educated audience. They could speak Greek, and probably largely a Gentile audience, not Jewish people. Luke doesn't claim that his gospel is original. Indeed, if you recall the opening words, my dear Theophilus, others have made attempts to do this, and now I'm drawing it together. Well, what's that effect? He is pulling together an orderly account based on what others have written. So it actually seems to me that Luke's audience or readers were probably not so different from us. They were people who were fairly well-educated, They were people who were eager to learn just what kind of Messiah this was, and probably they were people who were reasonably well off. One of the key themes that goes through Luke's Gospel is Jesus' relationship with and teaching on what in the Greek is the ptokos, the poor. And people put a lot of um, energy into trying to work out just what is meant by the poor in Luke's gospel. For people of relative affluence and power, the cultural norms of the time, which were about status, getting up the ladder, about patronage, about having people who kind of owed fealty to you, and about reciprocity, you had to give back as you were given, were seriously challenged by this gospel which showed Jesus to have a heart for people who were disadvantaged, disabled, persecuted, trapped, judged to be sinners. In other words, the people who were the outsiders, the marginalized people. It is not the case that Luke's gospel and the way he portrays Jesus is anti-wealth. What it does do is to challenge those who have resources to re-examine their attitudes and actions in the light of their faith in Jesus. Now, whether we like it or not, we are all amongst the wealthiest people in the world. Even though perhaps we may not think we're especially wealthy by UK standards. I found it quite salutary this week to do a little bit of research and discover that even somebody on job seekers' allowance is in the top 20% of the world's wealthiest people. And most of those people in the world, the 80% who are on job seekers' allowance or less, in most countries don't have access to free education or free at the point of delivery healthcare 
and probably not clean free water either. Whether we like it or not, even if we think we're relatively hard done by, we hear these stories from a place of privilege and wealth. So a few thoughts on each of them. The prodigal son is one of those stories that gets overworked, doesn't it? We think we've mined it for all it's got to say until we stop to think about where Luke has placed it. At the end of a series of three parables on losing and finding, and just before he goes on to think about wealth and poverty. And it's in this latter context that I want to think about it a little bit today. This is a story about a wealthy family, a landowning father who had two sons. Presumably, they had a good standard of living. And in due course, each of the sons would be a wealthy man in his own right. As is the way of all families, the boys had different characters. Those who have got children will know that your children are different from each other. Those of us who have siblings will be kind of conscious of that in our own families. It seems that the elder son was kind of a typical oldest, I think, content to stay at home, work hard and do as he's told. We also find out as the story reaches its end, its end that he is what we would nowadays term passive-aggressive. The younger son, perhaps in the way of, of youngest or youngers that I have known, he's more impetuous. He wants everything now. But actually, in this story, we discover that he grows up. He begins to question what really matters in life. And he finds that money is not the answer to happiness. What would you do if suddenly you had a lot of money? Not necessarily 161 million, but your inheritance. The story tells us that the father divided the inheritance between his two sons there and then. The easiest way to understand that is he gave them both their money there and then. One of them seems to have been sensible. He stayed at home and worked hard, presumably to make his share of the inheritance grow bigger make his life better in the future. It was a tough life, for sure, and by the sound of it, he didn't have a lot of fun, and his dad might have been something of a meanie. The younger one saw his chance, the opportunity to do everything he'd ever wanted to do. He could travel, he could have a good lifestyle, he could have fun. He went on a spending spree. Now, contrary to what some preachers will say, we do not know that the son in the story spent all his money on prostitutes. That was the interpretation of the older brother who stayed at home. But he did have a lot of fun. And then, oh dear, the money ran out and he was left destitute. The only thing he had left was the hope that his father just might have pity on him just might employ him as a servant. So the question I want us to ponder today is, which one of these boys are we more like? Are our lives driven by a kind of stiff upper lip sobriety? 
mustn't spend money just in case, mustn't have fun? Or are we very cavalier and spend it all now and having a great time? Or where are we in between that? Imagine you've just heard that story for the first time and you're still trying to make sense of it as you read on into the next chapter, as we know it, of the Gospel. And this time a story about a manager who falls foul of his employer. Now it is a confusing story and to make any kind of sense of it, we need to understand a little bit about how life was in those days. To be a manager then as now, was a responsible position. And it gave you a certain status within the local community. Whatever was the first century equivalent of a big house and a flash car, he would have had it. It seems his job was to act as a middleman between his master, who presumably was very wealthy, and the local local merchants. So they were also businessmen. And he supplied them with the products that they would then sell. The master would set a value on the products. And it was in the first century accepted practice that a manager would add on a percentage to that for his own use. If you like, that was his wages plus a bonus. So the story isn't criticising first century practice. And it doesn't say that the man in doing that was dishonest. What does seem to have been the case, as the story tells us, is he was being very careless with his master's property. He was not being a responsible manager. And now he faces instant dismissal. The upshot of that would be enormous. He would lose his status. He would lose his home. He would lose his property and he would be unemployable. His family would be thrown out onto the streets, and there would be no safety net to catch them. This is a businessman with soft, smooth hands. He's used to a fairly sedentary lifestyle, and he's worried. Physical hard labour is all that is left open to him. But he isn't strong enough to earn his living that way. He's not strong enough to dig ditches, it says. And as for begging, the only other alternative, well, the shame and the stigma of being the lowest of the low, to be the outcast, to be a marginalised person, to be a sinner, is just too much for him to bear. So he's actually quite cunning, a bit like the people in The Apprentice. He reviews all the accounts. Hmm... Well, suppose I make a bit less profits on each one. Suppose I reduce the bills of all the merchants a bit. Suppose I pull in my horns a bit and live a quieter lifestyle. Just then, maybe somebody will put in a good word for me and I'll get another job. It is a strange story. And anyone who tries to wring too much meaning from it is probably misguided. But Jesus seemed to think that we could learn something from this manager who was described as being shrewd. That we could learn from the world of business and commerce. When we find our backs against the wall, when our livelihoods are in danger, 
When it's our family that might be forced to live on benefit or handouts, what is it that we do? And then lastly, that very odd story about a rich man who doesn't have a name and a poor man called Lazarus. And that very bizarre setup where there's some kind of role reversal after death. What on earth, or in heaven, or Hades, is that all about? There is nothing in the story to say that the rich man was any worse than anybody else. Nor is there anything to say that the poor man was especially righteous. We need to remember what it was like in those days. Often the wealthiest people in their homes had an open courtyard. And it would be quite normal for poor people to hang around the entrance, around the gate, begging for alms. It's the kind of thing that the people who first read this story or heard this story would have been able to imagine quite clearly. And there would have been lots of people who went in and out of the rich man's gate to go to wonderful banquets. And they would have walked right past Lazarus, a frail and diseased man, quite possibly holding up his hands and asking for alms. Alms which, as Jews, they should have given. This man, Lazarus, never asked to be invited to the house He didn't want to sit at the table. He didn't need to have a grand banquet. It was, it seems, a person who would have been quite happy with the leftovers, with the crusts that would have been thrown away, the food that would have been given to the dogs. And just remember that dogs weren't household pets, as our dogs are household pets. Throwing food to the dogs was as good as just chucking it. The rich man's crime in this story is not that he was rich, and it's not that he was bad. It was he chose not to see, and he chose not to respond to what was right under his nose, and which he could quite easily have done something about. Now, this story is not designed to give us images of heaven or hell, or actually the Greek is Hades, which is not quite the same thing as we understand hell to be. These are not literal pictures of heaven and hell. And it's not a story that says wealth is bad. But it is a story that speaks to those of us who have much by the world's standards to consider what little thing it is we could do that would make a big difference to somebody else. What would be the equivalent of the crusts that we throw away? given to somebody who would value them. And so we have three stories about people who are relatively wealthy and have the freedom to decide for themselves how to spend that money. I'm not going to try and draw a nice, neat object lesson from those stories. I don't think that's how parables are meant to be used. I'm not even going to try and find a one-to-correspondence between them and us. But I think we are all invited or drawn or compelled to think about our own attitudes towards the money we do have. Where is it that we sit on that continuum from the spendthrift to the miser? 
How much is our status as perceived by others around us important to us? And how does that show visually? And what is it that we choose not to notice that we could easily make a difference to if we gave just a little of our plenty? Whether that is money or time or ability or love. There aren't any easy answers to these questions, and it's kind of ironic that in the last fortnight I've had one heck of a lot of door knockers asking me for money at church, and I've had to think, do I give them, do I not give them, are they genuine, are they not genuine? I know it's not easy. It's not so much that we have to have a perfect answer, but we have to work with it. It's not so much about how much money we have to spend, but where we choose to spend it. That's worth thinking about. Do we buy from the little local independent shop or the big global chain store? Do we choose to buy things that are fairly traded or those grown by British or perhaps especially Scottish farmers? Should we have that treat of a cup of tea and a cake or should we be putting the money into a charity bucket? You know, we can tie ourselves in all sorts of knots unhelpfully when we set these things as either or. I think perhaps it's that middle parable that gives us the hint. We need to become shrewd, to learn useful lessons from business and commerce rather than simply drifting along in a naive way. There's one thing that is clear. We can't just ignore the world of which we are a part. There are people in this country, in this city, and there are people in other countries for whom our crumbs could make a massive, massive difference. A lot of people are familiar with Matthew's Sermon on the Mount, which contains a series of Beatitudes, words of blessing. Perhaps less familiar are Luke's version of the Beatitudes, which are balanced by the Solemnitudes. Blessed are you, woe to you. And our prayers today are going to be framed around Luke's version. So let us pray together. Jesus said, Blessed are the poor, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. But woe to those who are rich, for you have already received your comfort. God of the poor, we find it hard to recognize ourselves as rich, especially when budgets are tight and personal circumstances challenging. Yet we recognise that having enough money for treats, access to healthcare and education, sets us among the world's richest people. The words of Jesus disturb us. We have indeed already received comfort. So show us how we can make a difference to those who live in poverty whether that is the relative poverty of those in our own city 
or the absolute poverty of people whose stories we hear about on the television or radio news. Blessed are you who hunger now, for you will be satisfied. But woe to you who are well fed now, for you will go hungry. God of the hungry, we admit that all too easily we claim to be starving or famished when we are in reality just peckish. Most of us don't know what it means to be really hungry, to watch, helpless, as loved ones succumb to the effects of malnutrition. The words of Jesus disturb us. We do not want to go hungry. We ask you to show us how we can make a difference to those who know hunger, whether that's the relative hunger of those who have no means of buying food, refugees and asylum seekers in our own country, or the absolute starvation of people whose crops have failed or been destroyed by violence. Remembering today, especially those in Kenya. Blessed are you who weep now. You will laugh. But woe to you who laugh now. You will mourn and weep. God of the sad and bereft. Sometimes we find ourselves among those who laugh and at other times among those who weep. Joy and sorrow do not respect status or wealth or race or even religious belief. The words of Jesus both comfort and disturb us. But we ask you to show us how we can be sensitive to one another. Rejoicing with those who rejoice and weeping with those who weep. Blessed are you when people hate you, when they exclude you and when they insult you and reject your name as evil because of the Son of Man. But woe to you when everyone speaks well of you. For that is how their ancestors treated the false prophets. God of truth and justice. We admit that we like to be liked. We enjoy the kind words and adulation of others. And so Jesus' words disturb us. We note that all too easily Christians in our nation cry foul at the least perceived insensitivity when in fact we enjoy incredible privilege and freedom. We ask you to show us how we can make a difference to a world where respect and diversity are all too easily distorted. We pray for all people who are persecuted for their beliefs whether religious or political, that they would be treated fairly. And all who know discrimination because of who they are might come to find acceptance.
God of all eternity, in whom justice and mercy are held in perfect balance, hear our prayers, which we offer in the name of Jesus. Amen.